0: Welcome to the Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status, frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, deal making expert, and best selling author of "Pitch Anything and Flip the Script," Mister Oren Claff.
1: For lively discussion about deal making, like to focus on things that are new in culture technology, and business with specific application to deal-making, the OKRs or OKPs or the outcome here is you should leave here with two or three things you can do today to improve the deal-making in your business yourself. So uh, I'm very excited here. I've got a great guest, uh, read a couple of his books, very excited to have him on, interested to have his opinion. He's very opinionated on some things. We agree on some things, disagree on others. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to Zig Ziglar. Zig, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Oren, How are you? Good, Jeb. Good to meet you. Where are you calling in from? I'm in Augusta, Georgia.
1: All right, all right, great. So uh, I've read your books over time with great interest, and I'm you know I pulled one out, and surprisingly, I had chapters highlighted and outlined, and uh, and you know some really good takeaway. And the, one of the books I really liked was on objections, and that's something I wanted to spend some time on. Sure. So I feel like, well, well, let's. <clears throat> Let's talk about culture. Like you, you meet a lot of salespeople. What in your mind? What are salespeople doing wrong today that you see over and over and over that just kind of makes your eyes roll? I'd like to compare notes on that. Like I, I've seen over eighty thousand salespeople from stage in person. You know, and, and and just it's just so hard to get through to the young guys. What do you think they're doing wrong? I'd love to compare notes with you on that.
0: Well, I mean, that's a that's a really broad question. What are salespeople doing wrong? I, I think that you know, relative to objections, I don't know that the salespeople are doing anything wrong other than doing what salespeople have been doing since the you know for the last hundred years, and that is avoid rejection. I mean, that's just it's just a natural thing for human beings to do, and you know, in the book itself, I, I talk about working with the military. So I do a lot of work with military recruiters, every branch of the military. And it's not unnatural for us or, you know, not not abnormal for us to be say, standing in front of a group of military recruiters who have just come back from combat missions where people are shooting at them. I mean, they're, you know, they're running into danger and, you know, and they're like doing everything possible to avoid calling up a teenager to try to give them money. They're just recruiting a teenager. And when you finally get down to it, like you, you'll say to them, like, like, like you, you had people shoot at you, right? And they went, yeah. And you ran into battle. And they went, yeah. And you did that willingly. And they went, yeah. So what you're telling me is you're willing to take a bullet, but you're afraid to call a teenager and offer them money. And they'll go, yes, sir. And what they'll say is I'd rather have someone shoot at me than to deal with rejection. And the thing is, is that when we start thinking about rejection and we start thinking about the emotions behind it, the two things that we fear the most as human beings is death and being kicked out of the group, right? Being rejected. That's the, the, and and our, our brain, the fight or flight response, everything that's, that's, you know, the neurophysical response to all that is basically the same thing, except for crazy as it sounds, we fear rejection more than we fear death. And the problem with sales is that it's your job. Right to go out in the world and go find rejection and bring it home. So I wouldn't say that you know salespeople are making like a, some grave mistake and it's generational. I mean, I think there are some generational things that are happening right now, but that's just not. I mean, I think it's not fair for you and me. We're probably you're probably Gen X. Uh, I'm Gen X, and you know we look back and, and think we look at this generation. You know they just don't have it together. But the baby boomers would have looked at us and said the same thing. I think that there is, there, it's easier today to, to find channels to communicate on that allow you to avoid being rejected directly and personally. And I think that people, salespeople are gravitating to that. But I will tell you this, our generation would have done exactly the same thing that just gen, just this generation is doing if they could have avoided rejection.
1: But let me test that a bit. I think things have changed. Uh, I don't know how old you are. You look like you're 35 or 33, but you're small on my screen. You know, could be an 80-year-old serial killer. It's kind of hard to see. Uh, But but listen, when I grew up, there wasn't the safety net that the kids have today. I said this yesterday. My son would starve in our kitchen, you know, if I didn't come home for a couple days with a fridge full of food. You know, he'd just be like, who's going to bring me the food? So, but if you extrapolate that to a lot of the sort of 20 to 28 year olds, you see like there are so many safety nets that they can go down from. Uh, so, so if you fail at your job, then you can do a gig on Upwork. If you fail in a gig on Upwork, then you can be a, uh, a delivery guy. No, no, sorry. You can be an Uber driver. If you can't really work with people and you fail at Uber driver then you can be a delivery guy. If you can't be a delivery guy, then, you know, the Biden administration will hook you up. So I feel like there is not that uh factor of I have to deliver for myself. And so there is a sense of entitlement in young salespeople today, in which I did my best. I read the script. I call you know, I got the leads, I called the leads. Where is the money that I have earned? And I feel like there is a sense of entitlement that wasn't sort of when we were coming up to you you say what
0: well you know i was with a group of young leaders earlier today and we were having a conversation specifically around you know their leadership and working with people they're leading sales people they're all in their 20s i mean so these are all 20 somethings and they were phenomenally talented people and not a single one of them was making excuses. We were making them do really, really hard things as leaders, getting out of their their comfort zones, and they weren't we making excuses. But, but, but wait a, a minute, hold, hold a second, yeah. But You asked me a question, let me okay. answer the question. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is that I have a 23 year old son who is a yeah. stone cold killer, right? He makes a lot of money and he kicks ass at what he does. And he sells for my company. And I'm dealing with, I work with salespeople and leaders Across the, you know, a wide swath of organizations. I've got a pretty big uh, you know, company and training team. And I see people who are entitled and I see people who probably shouldn't be in the sales profession. I see that there's a safety net. And I agree with you. Like it's a lot easier for people to hide the day than it was when, you know, in the 1990s when we didn't really even have email. Like the only way to get with someone was to walk through their door or call them. But I don't think that it's fair for one generation to, with a broad brush, go over another generation and say, well, you're a bunch of punks because you just don't have it together. I mean, it's really easy for us to say that. Every generation is different. And every generation looks at the generation that comes next and says, you're a bunch of losers. And we have been doing that since Aristotle was on Earth. We do that to every one of them. The thing that we have to accept, and I think this isn't true for us as leaders, is that we have to accept that this is who they are. And we better, by God, figure out how to lead and manage them and show them the way. And the one thing that is true, if we just go back and think about 10 years ago, the Wall Street Journal said that millennials, right, they were a bunch of losers and they were never going to own homes. They were all living in cities. Well, they're all buying houses right now because they're just like me and you. You have a family, you want to go have a nice yard, you want to live. We do the same damn thing over and over and over again. Now. Are there a bunch of salespeople that are are, exhibiting bad habits? Yeah, but there are a bunch of morons out here who are teaching them to send email all day long versus pick up the damn phone and call somebody. And you had this conversation with my buddy, Anthony Anarino yesterday, and I know that he told you exactly the same thing, but this is not the generation, right? These are people like you and like me who have no freaking idea what they're doing, but they call themselves gurus who are do are harming people by telling them that there's an easy way out versus you got to go out and find some rejection and you got to bring it home.
1: So this is where I wanted to get you. Uh, and I thought you were the right guy, but we're going to see in a minute. Nobody else will touch this, culture. And, and I, I had Jonah Berger on here and I tried to get him to talk about culture. He's like, you know, we got to be really careful here about my uh, you know um, peer reviewed articles at Wharton. Uh, and so he didn't want to touch it, but I, I go to Instagram and I see, you know, to your point, you know, the gurus are, you know, people who have never done it for more than six months, trying to teach people who've never done it at all, how to do it as a life living. But I do see, you know, guys from a more closer to our generation, like Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Who are now, uh, and, and he has gotten off a little of this, but his thing was hustle, right? So there's this sense of if I hustle and I, and I work hard, then there is the entitlement that the things will sh- show up. And so I feel like the guys we're running into, and, and I understand you have an elite squad of killers or leaders. So I want to do two things here. Uh, but, but I feel like this hustle society, this hustle factor, Instagram, where you get fortune cookie wisdom on your life that you, you can sort of apply at 8 a.m., but by 9.30 in the morning, it started failed you because it is not a thoughtful exercise on the things that I think we care about. Status, expertise, frame control, overcoming objections before the objections come out, um, dignity, uh, you know working with clients who are willing to work as hard as we will on their account not begging for accounts not coming in low status you know not calling people and asking them for 27 seconds so I want to come back on that stuff but I also want to keep make sure to keep you straight or honest or or in, in synchronicity on what I call the Dan Ariely problem which Dan Ariely takes 13 fucking college students that are white graduated modern day went to USC doing a a, a, a summer program at at Harvard gets them to write their names on a coffee cup, sells them that coffee cup for 78 cents and tries to buy half of them back with their names and a doodle you know, uh, of their first dog on it. And they won't sell it back for $3.50. Therefore, there's some conclusion. Uh, and, and so the, the problem is we can get in these environments with one uh, uh, archetype, one socioeconomic factor and draw broad conclusions um, about what works in sales, what works in life, what works in hustle. So two questions in there. How do you view Instagram and this sort of hustle culture? And second, um, you work with leaders, but what do you when you just meet salespeople at a conference and hear the questions? When you just see a sales pitch to you, you know, and they don't know who you are, what are the common mistakes that are uh, um, part of this culture? So it's two different questions.
0: Well, you know, when you talk about hustle culture, there's no doubt that hard work and grind and I'm an entrepreneur and, you know, I, you know, it looks like I've got instant success, but I busted my ass to build this company one step at a time. I started off, you know, literally, you know, in my flip-flop sitting in a home office, banging the phone, calling people up and trying to build a business and slowly but surely, you know, built and built and built and, you know, millions of dollars later, you have a business and everybody says, oh, that's really good. Um, I, I ran into a guy the other day ago that said, I've been watching YouTube and they're like, these, these guys are like, you can buy stuff and then you can go sell stuff and you don't have to have any money to do that. <laughs> and they've made billions of dollars. And I'm having this conversation cause I'm picking up some lumber and it's the guy that's loading the lumber on my truck. And I'm like, okay, so you're going to be able to make a whole lot of money really easy. And there's a billionaire who's already done this teaching you this on YouTube. I said, did you ever ask the question? Like if the guy's got a billion dollars doing this why in the hell would he teach you how to do it? Like, so why I would you do that? That is a problem. I would like, yeah.
1: like, I, I disagree with you um, so far on almost nothing, but it's gonna be a shitty show, but I gotta find something to disagree well, with I don't you.
0: understand why we have to get in a fight about that. I mean, but this, the well, truth is, is that like, whenever he says, I, it's like, like here's the he, deal. I don't take investment advice from poor people. I don't take diet advice from fat people. I just don't, right? Why? Because it's like I don't want to go to a shrink who's already got a whole bunch of other problems who's shrinking me. Th- that's well, the problem, right? So the yeah. thing is, is that the dude's poor. He's telling you he's a billionaire, but people are desperate to they get out of their 100%. situation. So they listen to this it, crap.
1: So, so you think about it. Um, so if you've think but, about
0: to but, but, out, that, does yeah. nothing to do with se- the profession of selling. That's this is just culture and society as a whole. I want to make it clear yeah. this is a I mean professional selling nobody who's got you know a, a sense of or an ounce of sense in professional selling is paying attention to somebody on youtube telling you you can make a billion dollars on shopify i mean nobody's but it, doing it,
1: it's hard those guys are good so i would just like to carve they the like like i think that they're compelling Their hooks they get ab data they run the data um you know you get a, a Ty lopez uh, uh you know out there who i know very well unfortunately uh and and so there is you know once you run the ads, get the data, get people down your wormhole. But I would like to carve out for anybody listening, right? That that if you think think about Tony Robbins, Tony Robbins and he's a good example, doesn't teach you. He charges, you go to his events, he does things, but he doesn't charge you to learn how to become Tony Robbins. He shows you how to be the best you you can be. That's what he charges for. And, yes. you know, presumably he's efficient at it. If somebody is charging you to show you how to do what they do, it begs the question, why don't they just do more of what they do? So this is a cautionary tale. For somebody teaching sales, for somebody teaching you um, Instagram ads, for somebody teaching you how to, um, uh, you know, run a course or be a dog walker, and they, them, they're, they're charging you to show you what they do instead of doing more of what they do to have a real business, it's a problem so this is this is a sidebar issue but I just want to <laughs> clarify it and also the other thing I'd like to say and, and, and I think we're going hustle is not because I want to get into professional selling. Hustle is not where you get the margin. That's not where you get the opportunity. that is additive. you can all like Hal Moore said right you know you can there's you can always do one more thing. And then one more thing and one more thing. And so those are the people who are go home and then doing a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And, and that's hustle. But hustle is not there are a lot of people with great businesses uh, that are using their smarts, their capability, uh, leveraging intellectual property, building a brand. And they're actually, you know, coming in at nine and going in at five and have a great business. And a a good venture capitalist friend of mine said, I love to come in my companies and I want to see my CEOs not running around, going desk to desk, doing doing their own coding and having meeting after meeting and not eating lunch. I want to see my CEO sitting up with his feet on the desk, staring out the window, pondering the imponderables.
0: So That's exactly the conversation we were having with these leaders this morning is that you've got to create margin in your day to think because the, 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 the most valued ability in, in a modern leader is the ability to predict the future. And a lot of leaders don't get that. Like they think it's growing people or developing people. No, it's your ability to see over the horizon and tell me what's going to happen. And whether if you're a CEO, that's exactly what your, you know, your board wants and your, and your shareholders want. But even if you're a young manager, you've got to be able to in your local market see that. Well, if you're doing everything, if you're, if you're the chief problem solver of everything, then you're never going to be able to have the time to think, right? Your job is to create vision. And I think with leaders, what we miss these days, and this is especially true with young leaders, and I would argue that we, there's a little bit missing in leadership in terms of courage and holding people accountable, and there's a whole lot of, I need to do everything. But I want to be clear for people who are watching and listening, when we talk about hustle, hustling and doing the wrong things, like working really, really, really hard at the wrong things, I mean, you might be hustling, but you're not going to get anywhere. Like, it's, you're just pushing a rope. But I've always said, like you know, one of my greatest talents. I'm not the smartest person in the world. Certainly, I'm not the best writer. I'm not the best speaker. I'm not the best trainer. But no well, one will well, ever are, outwork me. Why didn't we have
1: this me. guy on the show? I thought this was the best writer.
0: Right. right. I will never. I mean, nobody's ever going to out hustle me. I will out grind you every single day. And and so, no matter if you're faster, stronger, better, smarter, if you're richer. I will still beat you because while you're sitting around resting, I'm gonna find a way. Now I don't work you know 24 hours a day, but when I need to, I will. And so, if I need to you know if I need to get the next book or do the next thing, I will. And I think that's what's missing. But I think that you're exactly right. This, this, I think people need to pay attention to that. What you said about I want to come in and see my leaders thinking, you need to be able to think. You need to be able to consider if your life is so screwed up that you got to watch some asshole on YouTube who tells you that he's a billionaire and I'm going to make you rich or on Instagram. And you think to yourself, this is the person that is going to be my savior. If you're in that situation, this is a good indication that in your life. And I recognize that everybody has different circumstances, but in your life, you have no margin to think you are just living in desperation.
1: So I agree. And that that guy is not going to be your savior. Orrin and Jeb will. 1999, we'll show (laughs) you. Okay. Uh, We got to get eventually to professional selling. And I think something uh, that that you said is the bridge into that, which is the person who knows what's going to happen next is the most valuable person in any organization. That is why when I think about selling, and this is maybe as a leading question, but this is what I see everybody do wrong. And maybe you'll go like, yeah, I do that wrong too. But it's, it's leading with change because the things are changing and it's so easy today. Like back when I had this notion of everything has to revolve around change because then I will be the person who has studied what's going to happen next. And I will know how things are shifting and what moves the client has to make to succeed in the next generation of the industry if they don't believe that winners and losers the position of winners and losers are shifting around in the next 90 days then i have to do real selling and that's too hard for me i'm too not smart enough so uh, <laughs> um I, the and, and today it's so easy, right? Because what is changing? Oh, I don't know. You know, COVID, real estate is changing, the use of real estate, the communication, uh, you know, protocols, crypto, uh, the dominance of China and Russia, the ability of them to turn off our entire, you know, energy network, you know, at, at, at any time, uh, the law f- loss of Afghanistan, um, the, you know, obviously the politicization of the entire country, politicization of um, the, the vaccines. Um, the taking of vaccines, COVID is COVID the flu, disinformation, misinformation, the you know, the rise of Trump, which, you know, even on that side, you know, people who benefit from the rise of Trump haven't really liked the Trump by, you know, we have a 78 or 780-year-old president. And so everything's changed, and then it's trickled down to industry. So there isn't an industry you work in, even the plastic Santa industry that hasn't uh undergone dramatic change. So I think that's what I wish salespeople would lead with. Yeah. I understand how you guys got here, but this game is changing in the next two quarters and the guys who are at the front are going to potentially slip a place or two and that's a chance for you to move in. Let me break down my understanding of where things are going uh, qualitatively, quantitatively, and, and uh, if we get agreement... There's no one who knows this, you know, cyber security better than I do. And let's drill down into where you could be at the start of next year if you make the right moves. So I feel like that's where salespeople miss the mark is they go into we're the best. We have the best logos. We work with Microsoft as opposed to all the pieces are shifting around. Queen's pawn to King's rook four. Check.
0: Well, I think you're actually right. I mean, I'm, it's funny you said that because to me, that's all all sales is is a chessboard. That's it. It's just a big chessboard, and uh, and I operate in a, a, a on a strategy or a chessboard that's called MLP: Motivation, Leverage, and Power. And so, every single thing that I'm doing in sales is focused on those three things. It's it's neutralizing power. So all I'm doing, and power is derived from alternatives. So if a if a buyer has a lot of alternatives, they have more power. If they have less alternatives, they have less power. And same thing with salespeople. And most salespeople, if we're all honest with ourselves, walk into most deals at a a, a weaker power position than the buyer, either psychologically or in real life. So if you just think about that, right? All I'm trying to do in the chessboard is look ahead and say, okay, what am I doing that is neutralizing power? And I've got to run through a chessboard or a process to get there motivation is is individualized it's non-linear it is how people feel about me and you talk a lot in your book about frames so you're using these different frames one of those frames is likability do people like me so if people are motivated to do business with me because we know that the way the human brain works is really simple right we feel than we think it's just that simple it's just biology right so if we're not that...
1: interrupting i just want to highlight okay yeah. so because you're going through stuff that I think is so critical. What I'd like you to highlight if you're listening to this is neutralize power. Yeah, Buyers have alternatives and that has changed. I think we're in agreement. Too many- yeah,
0: absolutely. They have lots and they have lots. And one of the alternatives is do nothing. One of the alternatives is do it themselves. And yeah. you talked about like all these changes that are happening in the world. And in a lot of cases, people are myopic, right? And salespeople are myopic, but the people you're dealing with are myopic and they don't really understand all these things are happening. So for example, with cybersecurity, security, for example, I've got a client of mine who, this is the business that they're in and they're dealing with CIOs and CFOs and CEOs, and they're a little bit blind to the things that could happen to them. So they think we're good, or we can do this on our own, or we have a IT team that can manage this. And there are enough horror stories out there of the people who thought we can handle this ourselves. Here, hold my beer. I'll do cybersecurity, right? So... So what we're doing is 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 neutralizing that. At the same time, I want people to want to do business with me because this is the great neutralizer, right? And every single stakeholder, all the people in the deal, they have their own list of things that are important to this. I just call this a stakeholder list. It's a really simple thing to call it. And so I wanna understand what their motivation is. Some of that motivation is personal, right? Some of it's fear, some of it's opportunity, some of it's aspiration, whatever it is. But I want to I wanna get them motivated to work with me, me personally. And if my company and my brand are part of that, that's cool. But I really want them to work with me because I, I just want buyers. If they tell me no, I want it to hurt them. Like I want them to be in pain to tell me so, no.
1: So 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 now we're real. I, I just want to unpack this and go a little mm-hmm. bit more slowly because I, I don't think our mandate here is to take somebody you know from zero to hero in in an hour. But yeah. I want to focus on this. Now you, you have this wonderful southern accent. You know you're from Georgia. You have this you know cadence and and you're handsome. But for us other losers. You know, um, <laughs> we mean I have that like instant charisma. So this situation, you're going to a CIO, they have an installed cybersecurity vendor, and you guys are coming in and saying, uh, hey, I'd like you to consider our solution. And so what is the first you know, OKR or or goalpost or waypoint that you're trying to get to in terms of uh Really, uh, g- getting their focus on you, and you know, getting a chance at the account and limiting their options. Okay, so well, this is this, this, this is
0: the chessboard. Okay, so let's yeah. just look at the chessboard. So MLP in the middle of this is leverage. So just 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 bear with me for a moment. And by the way, I'm a complete introvert, and nobody likes me. So there's no charisma here whatsoever. This is just sales. It's just it's just a chessboard. So um, so if you just think about that, if you let's say you have a cybersecurity organization and they already have a solution in place. Well, number one is you have to get in the door. So you have to ask yourself if they let me in. Why? Because if they're completely happy and if what they're doing is completely working for them, then why did they let me in? Now, you could say because I'm just really good at prospecting and I get people to meet with me and I am good at that. Like I'm I can get people to meet with me. But I, I'm, I'm also have a lot of self interest. I don't want to meet with people if there's nothing there. So I don't want to waste my time doing that. So I'm not having meetings for the sake of having meetings. So they let me in. And I wouldn't say let me in because I want you to consider my solution. That's not how I'm getting the meeting. You know, I'm getting the meeting because I have. I have something of value either insight value, uh tangible value or emotional value for them to meet with me. So for example, if you're running a cyber if you've got a cybersecurity security solution and an adjacent uh you know company in your industry just say got a uh, a ransomware attack that shut the whole organization down, you know, my pitch might be you know what happened to them. I've got a a solution that will at least do an audit for you to show you what's happening in your business. And I thought it might be a good idea for us to get together to at least take a look at whether or not that might be a good fit for you. Now, once I get in the door, now all bets are off, and this is where I use leverage. Okay, so the, if you think about that situation, the power that the buyer has is the alternative is I don't have to do anything. Like I can just keep doing what I'm doing. I'm not broken. I haven't had a ransomware attack. Nothing's gotten in. And oh, by the way, switching out, you know, one for the other—that's awful. Now, if that, what I, I do, I
1: don't, I don't love audit. I don't love audit, you know, for leverage. Well, I'm just prefer, making, I'm
0: just, I'm just yeah. making shit up. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I, you know, I'm just well, making stuff really, up to, People
1: the, are really like, I,
0: I'm just worried. The yeah. Jeb said it, do an audit. No, no, no it's just my, actually I have yeah. clients who do that. That's what they do. They they're, they're they have a, they, they do an audit. But the point is, is that you got in the door. They let you in. Okay. If they let you in, there's something there. There's always something there, always. And it could be that their vendors taking them for granted. It could be any of those things. Now, even better is you say this: you say we should get together because what I do complements what you're already doing and makes it better. That's an even better way to get in. But not always is that okay. Like you talked to Anthony about, um, you know, about displacement selling. In some cases, the only way that I'm going to get in is the current vendor loses and I yeah, win. Sure. I
1: mean, if we have yeah. Ernst and Young for tax, uh, yeah, the tax organization, you know, there's nothing we can do to complement Ernst and Young. Yeah, they have but sometimes I can.
0: And, and sometimes it's not it. an audience. Sometimes yeah. it's a business solution. But it, you know, semantics. But I'm in. Now, here's the thing: when I'm in the buyer, because they have a a stronger power position than me, they want to dictate how the process goes. Correct. Right. Buyers so they'll say buy how they want to buy. Yeah. They. So they're going to say, and this is this is now. You want to talk about a mistake that's happening right now? Yeah. I did. Is that there yeah. are moronic, moronic, sales trainers who are telling people there's buyer 2.0 when we need to, to sell buyers the way they wanna buy. And I'm telling you that that is complete bullshit. It is absolute, total bullshit. And I don't normally say things like that, but it is. Because if you sell the way buyers wanna buy, you are going to lose. And if you get the deal, you're gonna lose even more because you're gonna come in and you're gonna drop your pants in order to get the deal. This is chess. Chess says that, I need to bend the buyer back to my sales process. And the only way that a weaker party can do that is through leverage. And the greatest leverage you have is information. And in a lot of cases, your pricing, like they wanna see your pricing, they wanna see that. So if you get an RFP situation, we just simply say, we're not gonna, we're not gonna respond to the RFP until you meet with us. And if they say, well, we won't meet with you, then we're out, because we know we have, we have no shot of this deal. But if they say, well, we really wanna see your prices. Well, if you wanna see my cards, here's the price you have to pay. So when you start thinking about that, what I start doing is saying at the very first meeting, what I'd like to do is just learn a little bit more about you to see if there's even a fit here. Get you talking, right? If I get you talking, you like me cause it makes you feel important. And the most insatiable human need is the need to feel like you matter. So if I'm listening to you, feel good about me. And then I'm listening to you and then you're telling me your story. And all I do at that point is just build a bridge, or I call them a value bridge. You call it whatever you want to. I just build a bridge from what you told me to why we should meet again using your language, not mine. Now, I just, it feels like I'm like you. So I'm basically, from the very beginning, trying to answer five core questions for every buyer in every situation. The buyer just wants to know do I like you, right? I just want to be likable. Like you said, I'm Southern. I got this draw. I dress nice, you know, get my hair right. But do I like you? Do you listen to me? Do you make me feel significant? Do you make me feel like you matter? Do you get me? Like, do you understand me? The most valuable relationship in your life is someone who understands you. Do you understand me? And do I trust and believe you? Now, the very first time we meet, you're probably not gonna trust and believe me, but I just need you to trust me enough to give me the next meeting. So now the next meeting would be Thinking about like what are the questions I'm going to ask? What 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 do I need you to step through? What hurdle do I need you to step through? You said something earlier, and I and I think we probably missed it. It was brilliant, and it was you. You didn't say these words, but I want to make sure that the stakeholders in the deal are matching my effort. So along the way, I'm compelling them to engage.
1: Yeah, and no, I give you my 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 version of that, and I will just come out and say, it. Jeb, stop. That I'm not going to work harder on your deal on your problem then you will. Like I'll, I'll fix it. I'll fix this a thousand mm-hmm. times or I won't, but uh, I'm not going to do it for you. I'll do it with you. Yes, okay? exactly. So why should I, right? I don't own a billion dollar company. I have no equity in it. You know, I might buy a couple of shares. This is a hundred million dollars step up for you and I'm going to make $75,000 maybe. Yep. Okay. So well, I'll work on this to some degree, But with the motivation you have, the ups that you have, the result that you have, and and why would you ask me to work harder on your company than you will?
0: So- and this, by the way, is something when we talk about young salespeople, you know, people are new to it, the, the disruptive emotion of eagerness, like I, I, I want to be, they want to be liked. Like I just, I, you know, I said this a couple of times, the most insatiable human need is the need to be, to feel important, feel like you matter. So with a young salesperson, they want to be validated and they're dealing with someone like you and me who are a lot older than them in a lot of cases. So they feel like I want to be validated. I want people to like me. And and so through their eagerness, and I, and I don't think they're doing this because of anything else. And sometimes it's desperation because they got an empty pipeline. But through their eagerness, they start doing all the work for the buyer. So the buyer doesn't have to do anything. They chase. And the crazy thing about chasing is that people have a really funny way of running from people who chase them. So they don't understand how to use a takeaway, how to leverage takeaways to pull people in. And that would be a, in your, in your vernacular, a frame that gets a person to lean in. They don't understand how to leverage non-complementary behavior. And, and nor that I, when I was 23, 24 years old, I had a master, getting Bob Blackwell, who really taught me like in sales conversations, how do you, how do you manage that? But the one thing that he taught me, by the way, as we start thinking about this, like I, I need to move to the next step, move to the next step, move to the next step. What he taught me, and this goes back to predicting the future, is that when you get into a big deal, You start at the end and you work your way backwards. And so what a lot of salespeople do, the salespeople who fail in big complex deals is they start at the beginning. And then whatever the next step is, is happening organic from that. Right. What I do is start at the very end. Where do I want to be? And then I try to figure out at what point in the middle do they make the decision for me? Because I don't want to close a deal. I want the deal to close itself. That doesn't mean I'm not going to ask for the deal. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to like say sign here. But I want the emotional close to happen at some place in the middle. And okay. what you'll find if you start breaking down complex sales processes is that there's usually this pivot point someplace in the middle. For, for example, when I was in industrial sales, if I could get them to do a plant tour, in other words, take me through the manufacturing plant and walk with me, my probability, my win probability after a tour went up to about 75%. I've got a client of mine who does a physical demo where people come in and look at a machine. Their close rate after a person gets up and comes in is 90%. But, but now, well, I, w- I want to go back because I, I agree with that. Um,
1: So I, I want to go back to sort of this, um, uh, you know, getting, taking the power out of, because I think you hit on a couple of really interesting sub subjects, but I do feel buyers come in in the control position. We have lots of options. Mm-hmm. what you said, sir, and I will hold you accountable for this. no, what you said and I agree with is buyers come in with lots of options to the degree you can take those options away and limit their options through mental frames or perception mm-hmm. that um now you've taken their power away and now, at least in my vernacular, you raise the stakes. So this decision really matters. So, when I, the leading question is, you know, what do people get wrong? Uh, change, status, and low stakes. I think I hear you saying the same thing in a, in a different way, but uh, it, you take away their options, raise the stakes that the wrong decision could turn them from a winner into a loser. And now we come up to a fork in the road. And it's set up correctly, and now you don't oh. have to do anything. You fall asleep. Well, if you or think about you that, go? so but
0: you, let's take, let's just take what you said about raising the stakes of making a mistake. Yeah. So if we think about that, that goes in our motivation column, actually more than it goes into the power column, because each individual stakeholder. If you're in a complex deal, you're typically dealing with multiple people. Now, not every person is at the same positional state in that in that in that array. But those individuals have fears and they have emotions and they have, they have aspirations as well. And so when you start looking at the stakeholder list, and this means, and this is a big mistake that salespeople make, and this is not new salespeople, this is everywhere, is that they don't take the time to get to know all the stakeholders at that level. Oh,
1: I've never made We them. just
0: want a, a seven figure deal. And I, I, a, so a big training deal. And there were 27 stakeholders, 27. Yeah. We met with each of them. We were the only company that did that. And not all of them had a lot of say. A few of them had a lot of say. But by getting to understand them, then we understood exactly what you said. There was some fear that, like, if we don't do this, we got a problem. And so Mm -hmm. now we're layering that in. As we're having conversations with them, we're layering that in and we're helping to reshape what the organization is. So you think you start thinking about the stakes, right? So if you look at a big deal, you've got stakeholder criteria and you've got evaluation criteria. So evaluation criteria, that is at the enterprise level. Power is at the enterprise level. Motivation is at the individual level. There is a collision there. Don't get me wrong. And so, one can but, shape the other. But take what you said. Go back down
1: to the 21-year-old, right, who's going to have trouble processing through their <laughs> monocelled Instagram, Gary Vaynerchuk, motivation, hustle brain. Uh I think it's pretty clear that you got to find all the decision makers, but what is something that Joe Bagadona's sales guy, not one of your Cracker Jack leaders, but, uh, uh, you know, the guys I get <laughs> that, so they know enough to say, Hey, who's the decision makers here? Who's all the, but how, what's a real methodology that they can expose who the decision makers are. So at the final uh, contract is going to signing, it's on DocuSign. Then go, oh, I gotta ask. This is a CEO level decision. Oh, I uh, the CFO has to sign off on this. Oh, my um, you know, my partner who you never heard of before, Loch Ness Monster, who I only meet with once every three <coughs> months, you know, has got to look at this. They're very smart. Yeah. How do how can somebody get inside the organization the way you do without your sophistication and figure out? who those decision makers are and map them so they don't pop up at the end as the, the um, stall point.
0: Well, let's be clear on this. I was born on a dirt road, a red dirt road in the country in Georgia, and I still live in the country. So there's no sophistication here. This is just chess, it's just a game, right? And, uh, and that's all it is to me, It's all it's a process. So the first thing is, don't ask people who the decision maker is, because as soon as you do that, you put them in a bad position. A little thing called cognitive dissonance. Just pay attention to this for a second, okay, because this doesn't take a lot of brain power. Cognitive dissonance is the inability for a human being to hold two opposing values in their brain at the same time without experiencing mental stress. It's really simple. If you ever tell someone you're going to do something and then you don't do it, you probably feel bad unless you're a sociopath. That's called cognitive dissonance. So if I go to Oren and say, Oren, are you the decision maker? If he tells me no, then he says, I'm no longer significant. That doesn't feel good because Oren, as a human being, feels like he is a significant person. So I put him in an untenable situation where he's forced to lie to me. And because he's forced to lie to me and I'm afraid of rejection, I'm willing to accept the lie in the moment until I get to the end and I find out that that's not the truth. But he didn't mean to lie to me. I just put him in that position. So do you so know your, do you know they're lying to you? I don't sc- have a clue. I mean, how do I know? I mean, I'm, I'm not You know, I'm not a lie detector. If I ask someone, they're a decision maker, and they say, yes, I am, what am I going to go? Well, you know, nine times out of 10, the person who... Oh, crap. What
1: happened?
0: ...do that. So what I'm going to say is... Instead of putting, a I'm just talking about human beings, right? This is just people. If I put a person, position, put a, a person in that position, there's a high probability that they're going to say yes when the answer is no. Okay, so hey, you're, you're, are people. you the
1: only decision maker? Well, no, you know, it's me and the you know vice president of finance. But I would I never ask
0: anybody me. that question. What I would say is, walk me through the process that your organization goes through to evaluate vendors in this situation. When when you made a decision about this the last time, could you tell me how you did that? There probably are some other people that are going to be interested in giving us an opinion about buying a, a product like this or working with a vendor like me. Tell me a little bit about the other people. Notice how I asked that question. I'm assuming. Tell me a little, about, a little bit about the other people who are going to be working with you to evaluate whether or not you want to work with me. By doing that, I let them off the hook. And at the same time, I'm able to listen. Now, am I still gonna get BS? Yeah. Am I still gonna get people walking me around the, the bush? Yeah. But I'm also going to kind of pull out what I call seekers, right? Seekers are where sales dreams go to die. So the person's just getting information for the boss. And then I'm gonna spend a lot of my time doing that. They're not willing to match my effort. I'll find that out.
1: I'll, I'll well, this, see if this is people Can involved. just slow you down on this? How does sure. Joe Bag of Donuts uh, identify a seeker in your mind, right? So well, somebody pretty, who's the, been sent out who, who looks pretty sophisticated, yeah. but really they've been sent out to collect proposals.
0: Really simple. So, so, I mean, an easiest thing we'll talk about, we're talking about complex, but a transactional deal, the phone ring. So typically seekers are coming into you, right? They're not, they're not, they're inbound leads. They're coming in through a web form. They're picking up the phone and calling you. And they'll say something like in the speaking business, you get paid to speak. They call up and they go, Hey, we've got a conference coming up. We want to know how much Jeb costs right? That happens. And, and so our salespeople are trained to say, well, tell us a little bit about this and what's going on. And, uh, and we'll kind of fill out what's happening. And most of the time, if we get them talking, because the more people talk, the more they'll reveal. And, uh, and, and we're listening to them, make them feel good, right? We get a little bit of a, a, a we, you know, sort of a self-disclosure loop going in their brain. So, a little frame you can put people in. And they start telling us and they'll say, yeah, well, I'm gathering all the information for my boss. And then we'll say, Sounds good. Let's get your team together so we can learn about you because we don't even know if Jeb is a fit. Again, we're using a takeaway frame, right? To pull them in because we're saying we're not gonna chase you. And if they go, no, 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 no. I'm just gathering information. I'm taking to the boss. We're out. We're, we're, we, 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 we disengage. We walk away because man, I have, you know we have run ourselves up on that you know wall a million times. We're just not doing it. Not on a transactional deal. So. So if it's like, if you're if you're calling in and the person says, yeah, we were downloading this thing because we're kind of thinking of it. You go, great, let's get your team together. And they go, no, 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 I'm just gathering information. I'll take it to the team. And then, and then once I get it to the team, I'll let you know. If, if you're a salesperson, you've got to say, listen, the only way I'm going to be able to give you information is to learn a little bit more about you because I got a lot of information. And the last thing I want to do is completely overwhelm you and your team. So why don't we get together, I'll learn about you, and then I'll tailor a package just for you. If you still get the, I'm just gathering information, just send it to me, move on. Just go someplace else. There's plenty of places you can go. The salespeople who chase stuff like that are the people who have nothing in their pipeline. They're empty, and they're desperate, right? Let's complicate the situation a little bit. So let's move it up.
1: Enterprise deal, it's a little bit higher stakes. Uh, They're you've exchanged information you've had meetings you know you don't quite have the contract yet it's sort of circulating internally you're not a hundred percent clear you know who the absolute r- rubber stamp final rubber stampers are you have a good sense of it of course the ceo can always just go we're doing it but that guy's a little bit inaccessible you need the other people aboard you have a sense that the l- lawyers are still want to come in and and torpedo everything and they still have to be dealt with so it's a little bit messy you your mid-deal but there's a million dollars at stake and they start asking you for stuff, right? So they're not moving forward, but they're asking you to produce things that take work on your side. I think that would be very helpful. For, Cause the overarching thing, you know, that we're talking about is, you know, and, and I really like your book on objections is not having those objections come up and framing people early so we, get rid of all this stuff. So there's no last minute stall. Yeah. So, so the situation is again, uh, your mid deal. Now you've invested in the deal. You want the deal as good as you are, as good as I am. We're acting a little bit needy because that's the way life goes. We're investing. We got time in it, energy in it, money in it. Maybe somebody traveled. It's it's on our pipeline. It's in our pro forma. It's a big enough deal that, <laughs> you know, it, it adds to the revenue, uh, cycle and throughput. We want this, Deal, but all of a sudden they're asking us for stuff, but not moving forward themselves.
0: Okay. So, first of all, say to that situation. so, So, look, that's really complex. And there's not a single answer for this question. So, let's begin with a basic thing something called the universal law of need. The more you need the deal, the more likely you will lose the deal, just straight up. And if you get the deal, the more you will be willing to give away in order to get the deal. So if you're in a situation like that and you feel desperation to close the deal, like you've got that tug and it usually starts with this. You go to the boss and say to the boss, we have to do this or we're not gonna get the deal. Or you're saying it to yourself. In that case, you need to take a hard look at why you need this deal so badly because- Just pause there. I got Daniel
1: looking on my shoulder. And Jab looking over Daniel's shoulder, going, "Get her done, get her done, son. Let's get her done, right?" And then I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm the neediness is from the back pressure I'm getting from my organization. I'm starting to get requests that I know are unreasonable, but I'm I'm
0: as a sales guy getting squeezed from both directions. If listen, if I go, again. I go back to look at your desperation. If that desperation is created because you have an empty pipeline then you're going to have to manage those disruptive emotions in a sea of desperation that you're not going to be able to fix. If the pressure's coming from your own organization and I've been there like you got the boss says, "Look, we've got a forecast, we need to hit the forecast." In that situation, by the way, as a salesperson, suddenly you got leverage. Like if my boss is going, "Look, you need to close the deal." I'm going to the boss and going, "Okay, give me something to close the deal with." Because I can close the deal. Like if you if you're if you're in a, you know, mid-cycle and enterprise level deal, and and they want to do business with me. I mean, we're, we're. I mean, we have to assume in this situation that it's not like it's not pipe dreams. Like you know, they're they've got an incumbent vendor they're really really happy with, and it's one of those sharpen your pencil type of deals. This is we're just talking about. Everybody in earnest wants to work together, and the buyers, the stakeholder group, whether it's purchasing or whatever, starts to ask you to give them some free consulting or to start working on things. We see that happen all the time. There's no SOW in place. There's no contract in place. We still got to deal with lawyers you may have IP issues, that type of thing. So we know that's happening. But if the boss is saying, Jeb, you need to get this deal done by the end of the quarter, then I'm gonna say, turn to the boss and go, what do I have? What can you give me that I'm able to use as leverage? right? So if they come to me and say, I want you to do some work for me, then I'm able to go, I'm willing to do this work, but I want this from you. But if you can do this for me, I can do this over here. So if I'm the salesperson, now I don't know if a 23 year old is smart enough to get this, but I know that I am. If I'm getting pressure, then the deal for me is I'm collecting the commission check. So if the company wants me to close the deal and they say whatever it takes to get the deal done, I'm gonna do my very best to protect the company's interest, but I'm also gonna do what my boss asked me to do. Now, let's take the next step up, okay? So we're getting pressure from the company. We got a little pressure from ourselves. Let's just take, we've been working on this thing for a year and it means something to us. We've got relationships with the stakeholders and, and we like them and they like us. And those relationships have gotten personal. And This is what happens probably more often than not. And there's a lot of contracting that has to be done. We got procurement over here. We got lawyers over there. We've got our lawyers, we got their lawyers. And, and the truth is in a lot of enterprise deals, you're probably not gonna talk to the CEO. So somebody's gonna make a decision out there on this thing. You may not even ever talk to the person who ultimately says we're willing to sign. Regardless, they come to you and say, hey, we're getting in a hurry. Like we need to get this done. And This happens a lot. In my world, it happens a lot. I had a really, really big company we're working with and this is exactly what happened. They go, we're in a lot of pressure on our side to go ahead and get some of this done. We don't got a contract signed. Now, guess what I got? Power. Well, yeah. I have power, right? Because they're coming to me and asking me for something and I recognize that the, 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 it's not what they want, right? It's urgency. Now I'm able to compress time. And if I can compress time, I can win. And so what happens at that point is I'm shifting from a selling motion to a negotiation motion. So I'm moving into, okay, we're closing this deal. Like I'm going to accelerate the whole thing. I'm going to start saying, you want me to do these things? I need to get a commitment from you. Now, here's the thing in an enterprise deal. You're going to get a commitment from the stakeholders. They're going to say, yes, I want to do this. And then they're going to immediately hand you off to a procurement group. And they're going to say, we need these things, go to them. And the procurement group's going to go do this. They're going to go, whoa, slow everything down. They're going to say, listen, Orin, here's the thing. And they're going to do this by email, by the way. There's not going to be any communication. And they're going to go, I need you to sharpen your pencil. Because um, like all your competitors are coming in. They're willing to do this less than you. Now, you know the truth. I've already got the relationship with the with the, with these folks. And they've already said, I want to do business with you. Go back to motivation, right? I want to do business with you. So they're doing all this stuff. And, and so I just tell the procurement group, you know, you're right my competitors are probably willing to do all those things. i have given you my best, the best thing I can give you. So here's what I think we should do. Let's get back together with the stakeholder group and let's figure out what we can take out of this thing so we can meet your budget. And the things that I'm going to take out are the things they're asking me to do. I want you to do this, 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 and this. So now I'm in a negotiating triangle and I'm going to win every single time because the stakeholder group, they need this done. The procurement group is slowing it down, but they need it done because they got time pressure. Time pressure is different than any other type of pressure. They got to get it done. And their self-interest is getting it done. And that's when the decision maker will reveal themselves. It so, caused.
1: Yeah. yeah, Because so, at some so point, oh,
0: right, they're going to, I'm going to say, well, I can't get anything done because procurement. And this happened just recently to me. You know, I, I mean, this is like the story. A senior vice president got a phone call that said, we can't get this thing done because procurement's in the way. 24 hours later, a contract got signed. I never met the senior vice president. All I knew was the stakeholders had made a decision for me, motivation, leverage, and power. It's it's just a chessboard. And once they made the decision for me, the procurement was just, I mean, they were just in the way. And all I do, because I'm not desperate, right? Because I'm able to manage that emotion because I know how people work. And I know that you know how to do this too. It's just a frame. All I did was leverage a takeaway. I'm not playing the game. I'm not chasing you. I'm not doing any of those things. This sounds pretty good. Let's get these people on the telephone and figure out what we can take out in order to meet your budget. And
1: so I, I, I like went. that a lot. I like that a lot. Um, in some in some people's deals, there's like sort of aren't things you can take out, right? So yeah, sure. say like tax strategy, right? Or we're we're going to take out, you know, the <laughs> we're going to we're going to take out part of the tax strategy. Uh, <coughs> so that's difficult. But what what I'll find, like my equivalent to that, is that um, I got to take you. I'm in. The CEO will say, I'm in. We want to hire you guys. We love you. You're better than Goldman Sachs. You're better than Houlihan Loki. We're going to go with you guys, but I got to go present it to the board. Can you come mm-hmm. present to the board? Which is, you know, I think it's not quite procurement, but it is a, a very difficult situation because the board will always say, looks like a good option. Go find me some other options so I can take a look.
0: Right, well, the, the board is the ultimate naysayer group, right? The board's job is to say no, not say yes. Sure. That's their job, right? So when you're standing in front of the board, you're standing in front of a whole group of people that are aligned with the CEO and their job is to keep the CEO out of jail. Simple.
1: So in that, in that situation, it's a little bit different than procurement. I say, look, you cannot come and dump your problems off of my doorstep. I'm giving your problems back to you. You get to You get to own your own problems. The board, I never met the board. You never told me on day one that I got to deal with the board, right? (laughs) Um, I presented to a lot of boards, but for this deal, this size, I'm not going to chase it. Here's what I suggest. Mm -hmm. And then I I teach them how to go around the board, right? The board doesn't really care. They just want control over you. They don't care about this. It's not a big enough, you know, they they trust you on this. They just don't want you making decisions uh, outside of them. Sign the contract do the deal. We go forward. Otherwise I'm out, right? I'm not getting involved with the board. This is not a good enough deal mm-hmm. for me to chase to that degree. We'll give you a seven day kill switch. Go tell the board you signed us up. You're happy with us. Let them aggressively opt out and convince you why we're not the right people. Cause most likely they're just going to go, Oh, I love those guys. Fuck it. Good job. Keep going.
0: You know, back to go. I I mean, if you just think about the that 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 scenario, first of all, Joe is not going to do this, but this is really smart if you think about it. Okay. So number one, we go back to motivation. You can only do that in situations where the CEO really wants to do business with you. And and I'm talking about you. Like they they like you. So there's if they didn't like you, they just liked your 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 you know, your your service or product, they're probably gonna go to the board because they're not willing to put themselves on the line if they don't have a relationship. So the relationship matters there. Again, one of the things that there's a lot of morons out there teaching people that relationships don't matter, but they do. Uh, So if you think about that, that was important. The other thing that you did was you said, I'm willing to walk, like I'm willing to walk away. So this is the most powerful, the most powerful technique, or in your words, frame and sales is the takeaway. When you are willing to walk away, people will lean into that. People will want you more, and I've even told people like, I, like I wonder, like when people tell say I'm really happy. I go look. Anytime you're happy, you should never think about changing. And they we go, Well, I could change if I wanted to. I mean, it's so it's just it's just reactive, right? it's so easy. So you say I'm willing to walk away. Now you've got them in both sides, right? They really want you, and they don't like to lose. And you're dealing with a CEO, and CEOs freaking hate to lose, right? And then, right, you de-risk it. You say, Listen, here's I the love, deal. I love it. I, I know, think.
1: I think also, I mean, you're so sophisticated. I mean, you say you're not, you know, and um, that you just listen to country music, you know, tune tobacco <laughs> on a dirt road, but, you know, go I didn't say show. I showed it back. I just truck. said I grew it's up dirt, on a dirt, dirt
0: road, red dirt road in Georgia,
1: rural right. Georgia. That's, don't sing me country music songs. Um, so uh, how soon in your mind do you do a takeaway? And I, I have a, vi- I asked a question because I have a very specific view on takeaways, but I'd love to... You know, I don't want to set you up. You can hear mine first. No, no, no I, t- yeah. I
0: typically do a takeaway from the very get go. So but, get-go, um,
1: but that's a southern word. That we're in California. We don't know what it means.
0: <laughs> uh, listen, I did two tours of duty in California, so I mean, okay. I, I know California. So, um, so, 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 f- from the very beginning. So, give me, give me an example, right? So, so, when I sit down with someone, so, so if you think yeah. about the sales motion, let's just take, let's think, forget, forget about enterprise level deal, right? But let's talk about, a, you know, what Joe Schmo is going to be working on every single day. A three to five close or, uh, you know, a three to five visit close. So on the very first call, the initial sales visit, I only have two objectives. My objective number one is to just make sure that they're fully qualified and I'm willing to spend more time with them. Right. And number two, typically that means I'm not dealing with assholes, right? I, I just, I walk away from people I don't want to do business with. So are they qualified and, and to create enough interest to compel them to want to spend more time with me? Really simple stuff. And the only reason they're gonna spend time with me is for their reason, not mine. So I just wanna find out their reasons why so I ask questions and then I tell them the, the things that they just told me and they go, wow, you're in my head. I've even had people say that. It sounds like you're right in my head. I'm like, yeah, I'm repeating the things that you just told me. So, so in the very beginning, I'll just do a simple setup like this. I'll say, Orin, thank you so much for your time today. Again, I'll use my Southern gentleman. I'll go, I just am so grateful that you took time to spend with me. What I wanna make sure is we still have 20 minutes and you say yes. Okay, so all I'm doing is I'm just getting you to begin to step into agreeing with me. Now this is not a tie down situation. I'm just making sure because once you say yes to me, you're pretty much compelled to keep that commitment. So if I say, do we still have an hour? You say yes, I know in the middle of it, you're not checking out. Then I'll say my core objective today is really to find out a little bit more about how you and your team do these things. And from there, if it makes sense for us, and listen, it doesn't always make sense because we're not the right fit for everyone, then we can talk about the next step. Is there anything you want to put on the agenda? And then you usually say no. And I'll say, well, will be okay with you, what I'd like to do is start with a few questions so I can understand you a little bit better. Then we can talk a little bit about me. And then from there, if it makes sense, we can decide together to move to the next step. The takeaway was in the middle when I said, you know, we're not the right fit for everyone. It's yeah. very subtle, right? It's a really, really subtle, but so, you can watch body language in that moment it, because as soon as you say it, they'll just lean forward just a little bit. Every once weird. in a while, they'll go, what do you mean I'm not the right fit for you? <laughs> you know, But that did not happen often. So I begin using the takeaway just a little bit all the time. But even a non-complementary behavior, like you come at me and go, listen, I just got to make sure your prices aren't too high. And I just relax and lean back in my chair and just write it down. Is there anything else? Even that is a takeaway because I didn't give them what they wanted, which was a fight. Tell me yours.
1: So, so, yeah, criticize me two things. If they say, hey, uh, prices are too high. I go, yeah, they are. It's more than you want to pay and less than we want to charge for sure. But, you know, I don't know. We, you know, we do this. Like, we, how are you different from the other guys? Well, we're not different. We're exactly the same. Like, you can find... You can go to Newport Beach, you know, uh, uh, swing a cat around five times, and find nine investment bankers, and they'll do exact same thing we do. I mean, the only difference I would say is that we actually get it done. But we all do the same thing. Like it's investment banking. What the fuck do you think it is? It's not a tea party. You know, that's what we all do, <laughs> right? There's only three ways to do it. The only difference is some people actually get it done, and you know, other people charge and languish, and it never happens. But you got to decide that.
0: I lost sound. Or and I lost your, I lost your sound. Your audio. Got I'm you back? again. Yeah, yeah there we
1: back. go. I hit my mic. I got too excited. So I will do something as early as after hello, which is like. Hey, I, like, I'm a, like a fisherman, and you guys are like that lobster at 0.999 pounds. And I'm trying to figure out do I keep it or do I throw it back in? And I like have a very short period of time to figure out if we're right for each other. Yeah. And
0: as much as the same language, I, gotta, yeah, look, we're not, I, just, I would say it's not always as a good fit.
1: You're interviewing me, which is great. You guys want to find the right person? Most of the time here, I'm interviewing you because we don't have this problem. Like I do this, we fix this problem all the time. You have the problem. I just need to figure out like how far down the road to hell you guys are, and if I can willing to invest my time and money to bring you back to, you know, the winner position.
0: It's just a it's a language thing. I, you know, if someone says, How are you different? I go, Well, you know, the thing is is that most companies in our world are exactly the same. So they got a box, they put you in the box, and you have to fit in whatever box. The thing that makes us different is that we build the box around you, but I don't even know if you're a good fit for me. So the first thing I have to do is figure out whether or not it's even worth taking the time to build the box and that's your time and my time. So if you need to ask you some questions, we learn a little little bit more about you. And then from there, you and I can make a decision together whether or not it even makes sense for us to move forward. You know, your prices are too high. And I like what you said, I go, I think acknowledge it. You, You know, you're right, our prices are really high. Now the words that you use, would probably serve you really, really well in New York City. They might not serve you very well in, you know, Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so I think, you know, I think we have to, we've, we've always got to shift to the audience. I think that what you're gifted at, Oren, and what you're really good at, and I think people need to pay attention to this, is, you know, even though you're doing that shtick with me, I think that you're probably really good at sensing the person well, that you're right. dealing I'm with and responding appropriately.
1: I'm on a podcast yeah. with Jeff. Trust me, I'm super tough. Hey, motherfucker, I'll take you out. I brought you into this world take you out. Oh, you know what? You know what? Watch this. You're so tough. How, how do you like that? But when I'm with a little old lady billionaire, you know, that's trying yeah. to hire us and I'm going to make $5 million. Yes, ma'am. Um, would you like, would you yeah. like some tea? I'm ordering tea. Uh, what, what? No, not too much sugar. Okay. Yes. What kind of 2% milk? Please get, um, lady Ning, uh, 2% milk. Fair. Yeah. So yes, right. You have to be sensitive. <coughs> it, just, it happens to be the world that I live in maybe a little bit more than B2B Enterprise is super alpha dogs, even if it's mm-hmm. female, male, they, them, other pronouns. It. Um, but,
0: but the takeaway, the takeaway yeah, works with the, everybody. The like it just, you know, the words change and it shifts and it can be like, it can be an in your face takeaway. And I'll use like I've got a CEO who's like, you know cause I'll get people on, usually after my sales teams run through something, I'll have people on and they'll do a direct challenge and like I had a CEO said, I need you to close me on this. And I said, I'm not closing you on this. This right. is a lot of work for you and a lot of work for me. What you and your team really need to do is go back and decide whether or not you really want to do that. And call me when you're ready. This and, is for people
1: listening. I, I just want to take out the highlighter and listen to you because you're saying some stuff that is just so fundamental. When somebody says your price is too high, agree. When somebody mm-hmm. says you need to close me, um, no, you, that's not what I do. You close yourself right? Uh, when somebody says, Hey, riding up the elevator, Hey, in one minute, uh, tell me about your deal. What did you tell me about your deal in one minute? Let me see a demonstration of how that's done in a one minute. Like I'm happy to do it in 15 minutes, but like, if you're that unreasonable. So well, I think what Jeb is saying is when somebody is unreasonable, just tell your truth. Mm-hmm. Hey, wh- no, that's we're that's weird. Paint somebody's behavior, yeah. call it what it is. If you internalize that it's weird, just say, that's weird. I don't understand what you're asking me. Like, um, why would you want me to lower my prices and then deliver you the best product? Like, is that what you do?
0: And or- I love what you said. Again, you know, we're having a love fest here, but the when someone's unreasonable, and that's what I try to teach young people. If someone's being reasonable with me, my stance the way that I'm working with them changes I, I shift it I can deal with reasonable if someone is being unreasonable for example, I've just met you I'm opening up the conversation I'm in sales my job is to learn about you not pitch you you don't want to be pitched you want you want me to listen to you I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch you but I'm just gonna tell you back what you told me but it's if the person says listen I'm not talking to you and telling you what your prices are that is unreasonable so in an unreasonable situation, you, you have to match that, right? But the way you do it is an, a non-complimental. I disagree with you. It sounds really good. I wouldn't talk to me either until I know the prices. And then I would say, thing is, is I can't tell you prices until I learn about you. So it sounds like we're at an impasse. How should we work together now? Or like when people will go, look, I can't do that. I said, well, if I'm not able to do that for you, how can we still work together? My favorite question. I drop that on the table and just shut up. And then they have to, like, they have to reframe the entire situation. Now they own it. They go well, you know. But we had somebody the other day go. I only want Jeb working, you know, on on our doing the speech because I got a bunch of different speakers. But but this is my budget, so this is the only thing I'm going to do. Well, if we can't do that, how can we still work together? If they say we can't, then it's really easy. Thank you. Click. Move on to the next thing. But almost always, they reframe it. They go well. Well, if we could do that, and guess what? Now they're being reasonable. If people are willing to work with you, are reasonable. So I love that you said that because most people, I, in fact, very, very few, very few people in sales use that term reasonable. And, and if you said, can you define reasonable or unreasonable? I go, no, but I know it. And, and I think you know it. And I think most people know it. The problem is we go back to desperation. Like if I'm, you know, if I'm desperate or I'm too eager or I can't manage my disruptive emotion of insecurity in the process because I have no framework on which to work, because I don't, I don't understand a process or I'm just, I'm you know, I'm winging it as we go along, then what happens is unreasonable takes the power, right? And now you're dancing.
1: I uh, one of my uh, I worked for a billionaire uh, is one of my first jobs. I think I wrote about it uh, on Wilshire Boulevard, you know, right next to Rodeo Drive, 84 year old billionaire, very difficult thing. But one thing I learned from him is when people were unreasonable, he didn't like to fight with them, he would hang up on himself. They're like, oh yeah, that's really interesting. I'm very, and he would just hang up while he was talking. <laughs> It's because he didn't like to, you know, get in arguments with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and I think, I think, you know, people, uh, w- we don't get a lot of issues on price. But <laughs> I can see how in B2B sales, you know, in enterprise sales, you would. But I, I think it's totally fair to say, you know, our, our prices are a lot. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're buying a cybersecurity software for your enterprise, the way the government buys toilets for a national park, like, it's, I don't even know what to do. But this costs a lot. Like, let's figure out what you need and um you know and and go from there so that's then that leads into the last thing i want to hit is i try not to ask questions because i feel like people feel they're getting painted into a corner it may be that in the spaces we're in the questions are more cornering feeling or the information. Like when we ask questions, we have to ask questions about the balance sheet, about the income statement, about revenue, about the org chart, about growth, about competition, about deep IP and things that are feel pretty invasive. And so is there anything wrong in your mind? Um and, and I feel like we know a lot about our, our accounts when we go to meet with them. So I just kind of go, hey, tell me what's going on with you. I'm trying to figure out those are the things that I've observed. This is what I'm seeing from the Exterior. This is what typically happens with this kind of company, this size, this pace, this momentum. Um, it feels like you guys are having, a, you know, a tough time here and getting um, uh, struggling in this area. But tell me, what's going on with you?
0: Sure. It, I, I think that I think it's completely reasonable. I think one of the big mistakes that we make around discovery and asking questions is we treat it like an interrogation. So it's like we you put the mirror, you know, put the the light in front of them and go, "What's your balance sheet look like?" And they're like, "Oh." What you're describing is is how do we trigger something called the self disclosure loop? Yeah, and all the yeah. self disclosure yeah. loop is science. Like this is biology. Yeah. So you can actually well, watch the-
1: everybody here because this is this is very. I know this is just stuff you roll through with your team, your leadership team, but my big dummies needed really would love this. This is to me really
0: fundamental good it's stuff. It's just it's science. I, I'll, let me. I'll tell you what. Let me tell you a story because I'm southern, and then I'll explain how it works. So I had a guy call me up and actually came to me through Facebook and said, I want to hire you to come speak to my team. And it was a day where I didn't have a salesperson on it. It was a Saturday. So I reached out and said, here's my phone number. Can we talk? And he gets me on and he goes, how much do you cost? How much does it cost to hire you? And I said, well, listen, you know, I'm not really a great fit for everyone. So before we even talk about that, I was wondering, it was a, a nonprofit. I was wondering if you could tell me, how did you even get involved with this nonprofit? And so he spends about 45 minutes telling me the story of how he was in this big accident and he was you know, incapacitated. And if it hadn't been for this particular nonprofit, that he wouldn't have been able to get back to running his business. He was an entrepreneur business person. And I listened and listened and listened. And when he finished, like he told me everything, like everything about what they were trying to do. I, I have one question. Like that was it. And at the end, he said, he goes, listen, this is how much we have. Will you take it? We went from how much do you cost to will you take our money, and it was more, by the way, than I would have asked for. So
1: a, a million percent, and and by the way, this is how I bought seven cars. Yep, is so, ask people tell me about how you got into this? You know what's your story, yeah. and and then you know I'm off on bring a trailer. I own yep. a car, and the story's still exactly. Not so That's let far. me
0: explain the science. So if you were to watch what was happening to this person's brain on a 3D MRI. What you would have seen is the pleasure centers of the brain lighting up like a Christmas tree every time the person told me more about themselves. And you've been here. I've been there. You've all been at a party, right? You've been someplace where a person's talking to you and maybe you're just in the mood to listen. They're talking, 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 talking. And then there's just this moment where they cross the TMI zone. And suddenly you're like, holy crap, I can't believe they just told me that. I don't and like their- describing me like that. Okay. This I don't like you breaking down my personality in that okay. way. But, but in yeah. their brain, by the way, yeah. they said to themselves, I can't believe I just said that, but they couldn't help it and they kept talking. And by the way, you've done the same thing too. You've been on a date or what have you, and you just talked and talked and talked. You talked yourself right out of the deal, right out of the date. So here's what happened. This loop is simply a dopamine hit, right? All it is, is I call it brain crack, right? You're, the brain is on drugs. It's no different than if you were drinking a lot. When you drink a lot, you lose all your inhibitions and you just start saying stuff you would never say to anybody else. Well, the same thing happens when you're triggering the self-disclosure loop. When someone talks and you listen, they get a dopamine hit, drugs, to the pleasure center of the brain, which causes them to want to reveal more. And the more you listen, the more you let the loop run, the more they're going to tell you. And and they just keep going and going and going, and you just need to stay out of the way. And th- one of the ways we get in the way is we step on it, right? We want to tell our own story. We want to feel important. We have a hard time, you know, allowing them to tell their story. They're silent. It makes us feel bad, so we jump on the silence. But if you just let them go, they'll go. And I bet in your situation, or you say, "What's going on around here?" And they talk in. They tell you all this surface stuff, right? Because they don't really want to tell you what's really happening because it hurts to tell you the truth. But then there's this moment where they finish telling you the surface stuff, and then there's just this break of silence. And all you got to do is sit there. Usually it's a count to around three to five, sometimes a little bit longer, but you don't say anything. And the very next thing they tell you is everything you wanted to know. They get you all below the surface. And that's really the trick of discovery. The game is ask as few questions as possible to gather as much information as possible and just make those questions really easy. Like, you know, if someone comes to me, I go, what you got going on? I mean, you came to me, you had something going on.
1: I feel like if somebody has listened this far, like put this in a box, take a capture of the screen, tattoo this on your arm. The questions need to be fucking non-invasive, simple, casual. This is not, um, (coughs) I was at the doctor this morning and they hand me a form, right? And this form happened to be for women, right? And, it's, and they had women's like body parts. I'm like, show me where it hurts. I'm like, I don't have this equipment, right? So it's <laughs> like the, the perfect metaphor, like don't hand the guy, you, you know, go through the form of 45 questions that you need in order to then, so like, if, um, uh, and especially don't, you know, hand um, them photos of female body parts if they're men. But yeah. I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's just so, so big, easy kind of questions. questions need to be so simple and you also need to take some risk. I feel like, Hey, look, this is my, I, I've talked to you one time. I did a little bit of research. You know, there's too much stuff online, not trying to, you know, go too far too fast, but this is what I'm seeing. And if you guys are producing this much revenue at this low margin at this pace compared to what Microsoft is doing, barely trying the market, it just feels like you don't have your sales tech stack. Organize and there's a lot of room to go there and, and probably, you know, I'm looking online, you don't have a CTO listed. I just feel like there's a big hole in the organization. What's going on with you guys?
0: So let's break that down for a second, because this is important. So we go back to the original question, what's wrong with young salespeople? It's not <laughs> a generational thing, it's just young salespeople. They just don't I didn't know how to deal with people. Someone taught me, right? So what you basically said is you need to test things, right? You've got to poke a little bit. Back in World War I, there was a general that was in the UK teaching people how to use a, a you know, a bayonet. And he basically says, you poke until you find something soft. And what young salespeople find is they'll ask a question like that and the person goes, we don't have any problems there. And then they feel shut down, like we'll go back to rejection. They feel like they got rejected. So they go back to staying above the surface. What you yeah. do and what I do is go, OK, and then we ask the next question. The person's in, I mean, they just said, I don't have a problem there. So you move on. They don't really care what they're talking about as long as they're talking. So you go to the next thing. Another way that you can take risk in the conversation is listening with your eyes. What are what are you seeing? Listening with your ears. What are you hearing? Listening with your intuition or your heart, right? So you're listening with all of yourself. And when you ask questions and they're talking And maybe, you know, they're just revealing something, but you see something emotional there. Like, you, even if you perceive it, ask a question about that. Like, let them finish, but go, you know, Oren, you were telling me about blah, 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 blah. It sounds like that may be something that's bothering you. Shut up. They may go, no, and I was wrong. But sometimes they go, yeah. And all you saw was that, and I don't need to send you to a body language course to figure that out. You know how to tell if someone is exhibiting emotion, you learn how to do that in the crib. You just have to be aware. So what what I notice in young salespeople and inexperienced salespeople is I'm watching and I'm like, oh my God, like that was a neon freaking sign. There's something there. And the salesperson is so focused on the next question that they're gonna ask, you know, that 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 interrogation question, yeah, that they missed this cloud that came over the person when they were talking about this. But it's risky because again, you might hit uh you know you might hit a hard place versus a soft place and they go, no, but this goes back to you know managing your disruptive emotions, being in control, understanding the chessboard and understanding people. Like you feel like they didn't answer your question. They don't even remember. As I always say, People don't care what story they're telling as long as they're telling their story. So you can control the conversation any way you want to just by asking the right questions. And sometimes the best question in the world to ask is, how so? or "How?" And I'm from the South, right? So I ask, how come a lot? I go, how come? Just like that. Put a little bit of juke on it, right? And uh, and then people would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk.
1: I'll tell you. Uh, and then here's a perfect example. I mean, we we'll get the wrap uh, on time here. But... I find for men, if you ask them about their sons, it's not quite the same with men and their daughters. Or it's not <laughs> quite the same with women and their daughters. But this this is just one, just way into the center of somebody's universe. Is for men, if you ask them about their sons, you know, uh, get sit back and get ready. And so. On that note, tell us about your family. I'm very interested to hear about it.
0: Well, I've, I've a wonderful family. My wife is the CFO of our of our very successful company, and you work uh, with your wife. With, I work with my wife? I've I've known my wife since high school, so we. Um, I, I met her when she was 14 years old because that's how we do it in Georgia. That's and um, and uh, my son is uh, 23 years old, going on 24, and uh, and got you know got his first chance on stage at the Outbound Conference, and you know really rocked it, and uh, you know, he's got a lot of talent. He's young, he's 23 years old, he's learning and, you know, suffering from the same thing a lot of people suffer from, you know, he gets in the deals and there's pricing and you don't want the conflict, but he's a killer. Like he'll, he'll prospect to anybody, open up any door. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm, that, that's my family. I got five dogs and eight horses
1: and, what, and a bunch of pecan trees. What does boy do uh, in his off time when he's not working sports or? Hobbies uh, he's
0: yeah, he's riding horses and playing golf and uh hanging out at the lake and just doing oh. the things that kids do. How about you, Oren? How about okay. your family?
1: Oh no, thank you for asking my camera died. We've had it on for too long. It will get mad. Let me just reset it. Hey, Corey, would you mind trying to reset this camera while I'm talking? So if you unplug it or turn it on and off and try and make it's just unhappy. Uh so I have a little boy, he's seven, and he's a hockey player. And uh I love to tell the story some people have heard it some people haven't uh Corey's just getting the camera back on wait
0: a minute and, let's let's stop for a second you accuse me of being young right you call me 35 and my son's 23 and you got a seven-year-old so what that yeah, makes you what 24
1: yeah right right we're late in life uh but my wife and i married late in life and we got uh we were both i think i was 45 when we got married uh, at least 43. Uh, so wow. I have a little boy, we have one boy. So we have all of them for him like you. And he, uh, plays hockey, plays soccer and he races cars. So he's seven oh, years wow. old and he's a car racer, took their place, uh, in a recent competition in Northern California. So we have him, you know, doing, uh, quite a lot, but I will just tell you something interesting that i like to, uh, story I like to tell about my son is that he's not a beautiful hockey player. He just, he's on the ice. 10 hours a week which means 30 hours of going back and forward to the ice everybody's here groaning they've heard the story before but but uh i think it's it's kind of interesting so my wife is from belize which you know i don't think has a ton of you know nobel prizes in sports management no. and so she just takes him to hockey and he's on the scr- the c team with the scrubs but i don't want him on the c team because that's where you get injured because people are grabbing each other and they're not skating well Right? I want him on the B team, so we have him on the treadmill. We have him on the ice 10, 12 hours a week. Right back there, I build an ice rink for him. It's a synthetic ice, right? Uh, and so I'm doing everything I do because I just want him to get on a B team. And so uh, he gets on the scrubs, San Diego, but bad news bears of hockey, but at least you know the C, the, the B-minus team. But I just have him working and he he loves it. He's on the treadmill. He's going to ice. He's back here. He goes to bed early. He's eating kale. Uh and in in Southern California, San Diego, you fight for ice time. It's not like a baseball field that's always there. So, so um there's a there's a practice for the San Diego Gulls A team in his A group. In his group. I said, just take him there. And she's like, no, it's gonna be embarrassing for him. You know he's just he's on the bad news bears. He's, he's skating around with the best kids in San Diego. Said, I go, but it's fucking ice time. Like the kid needs ice, and so reluctantly she takes him to because they'll let you do the tryout, and I'm, just just take the ice time. Tell him to grin and bear it. He's a tough kid, not really, but uh, so anyway, he skates, and they pick him up fifth draft for the San Diego Gulls A team. And to me, that's more motivation and that's more hustle. Than anything on Instagram, which is just keeping your nose down, grinding when and 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 being happy on the team you're on, and and you know eventually people will recognize the quality you have. You don't have to tell people how good you are; you just be good. And in the society we have, in the culture we have, in the opportunities we have, people will recognize talent like your son. You know, my my boys are a little bit. Um, young to be called talented, (laughs) but, but anyway, thank you
0: for listening.
1: And it just goes to the point. It's
0: a great story. A great lesson. I think it's a, I think it ties right back into how you started the podcast off. There's, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in that.
1: Well, thank you for being here with me. Very kind of you to share your time. You're, you're at the highest level of this game. These insights and the ones I tried to highlight are just so powerful we touch on a lot of stuff because uh you know i I think we we both come to the space of wanting to help people who don't fully understand how all the pieces work together but they do work together there are people who know how they work together get involved with jab or myself or people you like stay away from internet billionaires and you'll do well Jeb, thank you so much for being here. I'm just uh, Dana's going to end the podcast, but if you can stay around for one minute, maybe sure. we can swap information and okay. stay in touch. Sounds good. If you're planning to become a dealmaker at this level, make sure to join the Daily Dealmaker. We get into one little piece of this daily and so you're just stacking and stacking and stacking these tools and tactics and strategies until they come out of you as naturally as they come out of me and the people that I work with. Add the tips, tools, strategies, tactics a little bit every day and by the end of a year be a totally different new improved person and a very strong deal maker.
0: Hey, thanks for listening and be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff. If you want to get daily insights and additional assets, go to orenklaff.com slash daily and sign up for a seven-day trial of The Daily Dealmaker. See you next time.